0: Please turn with me to the first chapter of James, James chapter 1. Our attention this morning will be on verse 12 of James 1. And the title this morning is The Motivation for Holy Endurance. The Motivation for Holy Endurance. As you will see this morning that this text makes reference to The blessing of persevering on the trial, I've added the term holy before endurance to underscore the importance of the quality of this motivation. This motivation is one that flows from a heart that is settled in Christ and confident that where they are in life, God has placed them there. And as you recall in the early part of James chapter 1, it said that we should count it and consider it all joy. It's an occasion to be thankful. It's an also occasion to have the attitude of thanksgiving when we fall into various trials, multifaceted trials, multicolored trials. The trials vary, but whatever the trial is, we should consider it an occasion to be grateful, an occasion for joy. Now, when we think of the variety of trials, we, we can consider that there's some among us and some that we know who are in a perpetual state of a trial. It's never-ending. Some were born with the affliction. Others, like Johnny Erickson, Erickson, Tata, Erickson Tata, Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, this happened over time. She was afflicted through a very severe accident at a young age. And so her trial is perpetual. It is, it is ongoing until the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, your trials may be in seasons. From moment to moment, could be family affliction, personal affliction. But we should consider it all joy. But the difference between what the believer experiences and the unbeliever is that the believer sees this under the gracious providence of God, that God is at work in this trial to conform you to the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to build up this gift of endurance that He has given to you. And it says that when you encounter various trials, You should rejoice and give thanks because you know that the testing of your faith, this refining of your faith, and the revealing of the quality of your faith, it brings about perseverance. It brings about spiritual perseverance. There is this holy endurance in the process of trials that God builds you ought to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. But have you ever considered the trial as maybe a waste of time? Have you had a difficult morning, a very hard morning? Like, this? And what do you say? This is a, a waste of good time. Instead of seeing the trial as something good, you immediately throw it in the recycling bin or the trash bin. I wish this never happened. How easy we may overlook just what may be the mundane trying events of the day and call it a waste. Maybe as a parent, you tell your children who just seem to be taking too long to get ready. Why do you always waste my time? Maybe it is in the province of God that this minor affliction is happening to reveal that you're not dealing with your children's tardiness, but your gross lack of patience. That on the fundamental level, you're just not patiently enduring with the children, as God patiently endures with you in your waste of time. For example, instead of spending time in the Word and prayer, you'd rather entertain yourself. Now, nah, that's a waste of time. Instead of Focusing on spiritual things, you mind your heart and your thoughts on carnal things. That's a waste of time. But how patient is our God as he graciously leads us to a place of maturity. And he bears up lovingly with us. If there's one person who knows how precious time is, it is God. And so trials are not a waste of time. They are God's refining seasons, refining moments in our lives. And that is true when it comes to whether it is a a trial that seems to be minor or something severe. The world will see trials as a a waste of time. Why are you going through this affliction? You you could better your situation. You can alter your circumstances. The world sees trials and hardships as a waste of time. That is why, to some degree, they find hardships in marriages difficult and a waste of time. Because they do not see it as God's pruning place to sanctify, to mortify, and then ultimately, as James 1, 12 will say, to glorify. God pronounces, dear saints, his blessings. Trials are his grand workhorse, his workplace, his workstation, where he's conforming you and I to be like Christ. Trials are God's workplace. And he's building eternal priorities through your trial. Through your trial, he prepares you for the final reward of eternal life. James 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres on the trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Verse 12 is a summary and a transition. It summarizes what the Lord inspired James to write in the first 11 verses of this chapter. But then it begins to, to set a, a very important principle of truth when it comes to trials or temptation. And one of the underlying themes as you look at this section is really your thoughts about God and what God is doing. What are your thoughts about God in the trial? Or when the trial reveals this sin issue of the heart and it tempts you to sin and you sin, what are your thoughts about God? Do you believe that this trial was used by God for you to sin? Well, back to the early part of James 1, it says to consider it all joy, my brothers, verse 2, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance and let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproaching will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, doubting nothing, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to boast in his high position, and the rich man is to boast in his humiliation, because like the flower and grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass and its flowers fall off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. And then in the context, verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres on the trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now back to the big picture of James. It is to encourage Christ like authenticity in every aspect of life. I did stress the importance of your thoughts about God, and including in that is to have a valued judgment about trials and God in those trials. The valued judgment is that trials are an occasion to be thankful because God is at work in the trial to mature you. Trials reveal and refine. And then when you lack wisdom for the trial in verse 5, you ask God, and then you trust that God is it's generous, or God is sincere that he wants to give you the wisdom and he wants to help or enable you. That sincerity is a critical component to not only receiving wisdom, but trusting God in the trial. That no matter how severe the trial is, no matter how difficult the trial may be, that God has ordained this trial for your sanctification. And your objective is not to get out of the trial but to remain strong in Christ in the trial it is to remain under God's gracious affliction until God brings you out of it you're not trying to reason your way out bargain your way out pay your way out talk your way out you are trusting God in that trial until God graciously brings you through it matures you in it. And so this this aspect of your trust and your confidence in God and God is vital to bearing up in the trial, knowing that God is using that trial. Verse 12, this morning, there are three motivations for holy endurance. And once more, this holy endurance is. It's believers enduring with joy, with thanksgiving, with gratitude. When the world is dealing with hardship, just to give you a comparison, they're going to complain and bemoan the moment. They will ask why this is happening. The Christian rejoices in the moment, gives thanks in the moment, and they know why it's happening. See the difference? So critical. So vital. There is, a, in James, he speaks uh, about this, this alliance with the world, of friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Now the context is, is different in, in this passage of James, but once again, one letter, you can apply that principle even as you consider trials. For you to have the wrong thoughts about trial is to be hostile toward the God who has ordained that trial for your good. So Holy Endurance has the virtue of a Christ-like response to the trial, thanksgiving, Christ-like maturity in the trial, sanctification, and also it applies God's wisdom in the trial. The world does the opposite. They will search social media, online, they will ask the so-called experts, the Dr. fills of the world, and... Uh, uh, let me not give you other names of just depraved thoughts and suggestions. And, and yes, some believers eat those principles up. So, when well, I watched this show, and they were very helpful. No, they're not. They're harmful. They may have moments of wisdom that you give God thanks, but overall, their position is not the glory of God. It's not sanctification. It's, it's, it's a better temporal circumstance. But as I reminded you earlier, there, there are some who are living in such hardship that is perpetual. What do we say to them in those circumstances? We say the same as we would say to all. That you give God thanks because you know that trials are preparing you for the future. The hardship, the difficulty, is preparing you for the future. And so verse 12 gives the motivations for you to endure. And so the first motivation in verse 12 is that Your trial comes with God's blessing. Your trial comes with God's blessing. There is a partnership, a relationship, an alliance between the trial and the blessing. As you recall, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 and verse 8, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for this is the kingdom of heaven, Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This blessing and the trial in this present life are related. There is a partnership between God blessing the believer who bears up, who endures the trial with thanksgiving. Now, as you're thinking about that, you may ask the question, well, I mean, I failed yesterday, and you might say, Well, I failed this morning. You think about the trials maybe on the way to work. If you drove alone, you may have had some bad thoughts that were tempting you. Some challenging thoughts in your mind, or maybe you you had your spouse next to you and, and they weren't very helpful on the way to church this morning. They weren't very encouraging this morning. Maybe the children weren't on their best behavior for you, you say, well, I, I failed. Well, there are saints that the encouragement in this passage is not perfection. It is calling and encouraging consistency. Consistency, which means that repentance is not out of this process. That when you know you've failed, that moment in the trial you seek God's gracious forgiveness, and then you keep remaining under the trial. You learn from it, and you go, this is not perfection, this is consistency. So this blessing is not removed because, well, I, I failed this morning. I didn't quite lend this trial as I should. I didn't bear up onto it in a godly way. I, I had moments. We all had them. We all have them, and we will have them. So there's grace, there's mercy, there's forgiveness. This is not perfection, this is consistency in how you respond to trial. This blessing is like what Scripture says to God's people in Deuteronomy chapter 33 verse 29. How blessed are you or Israel who is like you? People saved by Yahweh. This is completeness or fullness in Christ. When you are blessed, there is a sense of fullness. Now think about this, to where trials or circumstances do not alter this blessing. Trials and circumstances, good or bad, never changes the fact That you are blessed, because this blessing has to do with your place in salvation. That those who are in Christ are favored by God, are loved by God, cherished by a gracious and a good Father who cares for them. And yes, we can say, Truthfully, because of Christ, there's a special affection that the Father has for us in Christ that the unbeliever does not have. There's a a special relationship as adopted children that we have that the unbeliever does not have. So when you think about the trial, you remember that you're blessed in Christ. Christ as Ephesians says, with every spiritual blessing. And that the trial does not have to alter your confidence in God. Your confidence that God is using the trial for your good. Now, dear saints, there's some trials that, beloved, just, they just don't feel good. That's why this blessedness is Although it may have some emotional components to it that is subjective, this blessing is really objective. It's a certainty based on the character of God, not, how are you feeling today? It's not, it's, it's not based on that because some trials, they just, they just don't feel good. They're painful, they're difficult, they're pressing, they seem to affect every part of you from, from your appetite to your drive, to to your zeal. But because God is good, you see the good in the trial. Blessed, therefore, is the man who perseveres, who, who remains under the trial. Of course, this blessing has to do In verse 12, with a future glorious reward. Earlier in James, it was the present blessing of maturity. But now he's saying perseverance also produces something eternally beneficial. I may stress it later, but in case I do not, this is worth noting, dear saints. um, That this crown of life is for every Christian. So, therefore, enduring under the trial is the expectation for every believer. This is God's expectation for everyone because it says it was promised to those who love Him. You cannot and you will not be a Christian if you don't love Him. So, every Christian. This is for every believer, because if you are saved, you, you love him. You love him because he first loved you and gave his son, as the apostle said, as a, as a propitiation for your sins. In fact, repentance and faith is, is a sign not only of obedience, but love, because love obeys. So this is for every believer. The expectation is that we will all bear up under the trial. But what is necessary, as James says, is your disposition is important, right? Your attitude toward trial, your attitude toward life. Do you believe that you deserve good things? Well, as far as the gospel is concerned... You don't deserve good things. Apart from Christ, the gospel declares you have earned one thing. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in falling short of the glory of God, you get what you deserve, and that is damnation. The one thing that you and I earn is death, and the one thing that we deserve is hell. So the Christian, with eyes open to see Christ and the gospel, they're amazed at God's goodness in salvation. Well, that, amazing, that amazement continues in life. As you look at life, you do not consider or think that you deserve anything good if you have the right disposition toward the gospel in your own self. And so the trial, therefore... You see this God's blessing, God's stepping stone to something glorious. It comes with God's blessing, this this fullness in Christ, this completion in Christ to where you know that you're fully complete in him. Therefore, trials do not make it the worse. You know, it's very helpful when you consider that to realize that if your trials appear to be harder than someone else, Because you are complete in Christ, and you're blessed because of Christ, then the severity of your trial compared to others is irrelevant because of Christ. Number two. The second motivation is that your trial is God's testing place. It is God's testing place. It says, "Blessed is the man who perseveres on the trial, for once he has been approved." Um, Very similar word to what we find in verse three: the testing of your faith. It's it's to reveal what is there. It is to determine the value, the genuineness of currency, maybe of of a painting or pottery. And uh, when we ordered some Bibles, and some of you ordered a variety of, of the uh, LSB translations, there, was, there were some Bibles that were, as you know, right, genuine leather. And then there was another kind. It's called what? I had, I had three different words, right? Faux, faux. It's, it's a faux of those who like real leather. It's faux because it's fake. What is fake leather? But if, if you look at it, right, it's, it's hard to tell unless they say it's not genuine. But given time and usage and the pressures of just opening and closing, and maybe you have it on your dashboard because you don't read it, it's just kidding. I have a fall leather Bible for my dashboard. Um, but after time you, you you see the wear and tear, it's just different. It, it just doesn't hold up the same. Now, there are saints you say, well, it doesn't matter if it's fall or genuine, it matters what's inside. That's true. Just a minor illustration. Over time, the fall leather shows more signs of wear and tear. Now, Genuine leather, guess what happens over time? It just gets better. You might need a little bit of glossing off, a little shining and, you know a little TLC, but it holds up over time. The fall, nice. It has cracks. The pages start to tear the, the cover starts to tear apart, all of a sudden you you might have a a coverless Bible. Because it just just doesn't bear up. Now, nothing against those of you who bought the the fall, just just an illustration. Take it personal. Bring your fall next week. It may be fake, but the words in it are true. Well, there's a principle when it comes to what the trials of life are doing in your heart. It's revealing whether or not it's the genuine or the fake. Whether or not this is true, redemptive, sanctifying, glorifying salvation or temporal, circumstantial, eventual religion. This is a a holy, divine vetting. God uses trials to lead you to glory, but on the way, it's a way to determine whether or not you're truly abiding in this eternal life. It is God's testing place. You would say, well, that doesn't sound motivating. It does to me. It's best to know that you're on your way now than to know you were never on your way then. It's good to know now where you stand with the almighty, righteous, just, and holy God now, than to standing eternally to realize that you were that that far attendee. You weren't real. There was no genuineness. A little smack here, a little attack there, and all of a sudden you fall apart like a fake book. This is motivation, not only for the Christian, but maybe the unbeliever among us who's uncertain about where they stand with God. Well, what helps are trials, adversity, afflictions. Because the fall may fool you, but it cannot pass the real test, and the real test is the test of times and trials. For once he has been approved. And this approval is not God accepting, but it is God purifying and then displaying, there, there is my child. I did it with Job. So there, there's, my, there's my son, Job. What a child of the faith is that, Job? That's what it does. It, it's not, well, I accept you, God says. Now, oh, you really did great. Um, yeah, I have to receive you. Yeah, you passed the test. No, it is to display the genuineness of faith, the genuineness of trust, the genuineness of confidence in God's generosity. Now, we must realize there are saints that these trials are not merit stones but they are stepping stones God uses them and as we get to the end of verse 12 from one step from one trial to another it should lead you upward once more that's, that's your proving part of, of the trial are the trials leading you upward are they Are they leading you from from one phase of glory? Is it a preparation, a process toward this future glorious heavenly joy in Christ? Is it? Once again, that's what the test does. It weans you off of your cares for this world. And all we, we just love our comforts, don't we? Especially in America. you Just have to have to. Yeah, I have to have my Starbucks every morning. Just got to have it. Just, and then when you don't get it, you're shaking and shivering. Your nerves are all wrecking you. All over the place, because I, I have to get my Starbucks. Comforts. Pantry, it's, it's got to be stocked with. My favorite. Happy foods. Just, and if it's not there and, Oh, please don't let the kids finish it. It's trouble. We're driven, instead of by trials, we're driven for comforts. But dear saints once more, the value judgment is, is not seeing the comfort, but seeing the glory in the trial, the hardship, to give thanks, to, to be joyful and know that yeah, this... This is preparing me for the future glory, the glory to come. It's removing the the dross and the scum and and the filth and the buildup over the years of this, this earthly, pleasurable drive and desire that I have. And it is driving my thoughts toward Christ and the glory that is to come. First Peter, there are several similarities in this letter, and, and uh, Peter, notice what the apostle says. In First Peter chapter 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to reveal in the last time. Now verse six says, "In this you greatly rejoice. Notice this, beloved. in this you greatly rejoice, why even though, even though this is happening, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved and once again by various multifaceted uh, trials so that with the result that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of jesus christ so now the apostle peter drives home a point Pertaining to rejoicing even though you agree by many trials, when he talks about the proof of your faith through this test may be found to result through the test may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you're going through this test Peter says, and it is a It's a strong test. It is a severe test for the saints. They were suffering greatly, most likely at the hand of Nero. And so you're talking about threats for your life because you are a follower of Christ. You only have one king. Your king is the Lord Jesus Christ. That didn't go very well with a lot of the leaders then, especially Nero. And so the trials were severe. But the trials were refining the saints. And you know what? These trials will do for the aints. The saints stay. The aints ain't staying. It's just it's not going to hang around. The trials. They're going to find something better, easier religion. That is probably one reason why the prosperity gospel is so much fun. It's it's easy. You name it, claim it, and then the demon supplies it, and he gives it to you. It's not from God. No man can demand anything from God. But they certainly can demand it from the devil. They say, Oh, you want God to answer your prayer? I'll help you out. Here it is. The easy way out, but no, the believers understood that suffering is God's path to glory. And dear saints, it may not seem like a motivation for you, but when God's Using the trials a testing place, he's preparing you for something glorious. Once more, we go back to this aspect of trusting God. Trust God. Do you think? Well, maybe God can do something a little better. Nope. God's ways are always best. You say, "Well, God couldn't. This be done a little differently." Once more, you. I know I'm just doing this rhetorically, but if you ask those questions, if you understood who God is and you trusted his character, you won't ask that question. Those questions only ask when there's a lack of confidence in the goodness of God. And that every moment in life he uses for your good. Look, there's saints, everyone's being tested, believe it or not. You don't have to be a Christian to be tested or life to be hard or life to have trials in life, that is. But it's, it's certainly good and comfortable to know that it's not a waste of time, as we said earlier. Can you imagine the unbelieving world going through hardships and afflictions with cancer and, and tumors and bodily affliction? One famous actor has, has dementia and his, his family don't know what to do. It's like he's suffering and, and like there's, there's just no hope. No hope. We're in a sinful world, we're going to suffer, but it is so beautiful that God redeems every moment, including our suffering. He does something good with it. That, tell me, should be encouraging because we will all face difficult times. There's going to be some loss. There will be sorrow and death and grief and affliction. But the beauty is that God uses it to refine your character and to prepare you for the future. I was thinking about that in what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians. You recall that passage. You know that Paul is defending his apostleship, but he couldn't help but declare the gospel because he's a minister of the new covenant. And he says we we don't lose heart since we have this ministry and we receive mercy. This is a ministry of mercy. We're not going to retreat to to crafty sermons and and, and tricky sermons. and We're not going to bring in the mariachi band on on Spanish month and the urban band on Black month and and then the Caucasian band on July and Independence Day. We're not going to do that. We're not here to attract the masses, we're here to glorify the master. The preaching glorifies Christ. Now, just as an aside, that's also trying for the pastor and the preacher. It's a trial for the preacher because it is easy to attract the masses, right? Just have something palatable for them, something they enjoy, some type of honey for the bees, and they'll come buzzing, Say, Sunday we have this great comedian, this entertainer is going to come on Sunday. I mean, one church actually had an entertainer come on the Lord's Day. Sorry, my bad. Please, saints. One quote, church. Paul says, we renounce these things. But then, he goes on to say, This later on in in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. He repeats what he said in verse 1 in a similar way. But he says, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction. All right, now, Paul, come on. Paul may have not experienced some afflictions that we have. Maybe that's why he says that. When you look at chapter 11, Paul had some severe affliction. You recall uh, a number of those things, right? He says, I've been three times I was beaten with rods, five times some of the Jews, 40 lashes, less one. They cut, they cut him some slack and only gave him 39. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been in frequent journeys. That doesn't look light to me. Shipwrecked? we were flying back up yesterday and you know when you're like 30 something thousand feet in the air and um, you know you have two pilots and they're human you have to trust somebody in those moments and paul said I didn't have the potential for an accident. I had them. A night and a day I have spent in the deep, in dangers from rivers. That's not light. So what is he saying? In chapter 4, he's saying that in comparison... He says, for this momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So what's happening now is leading to this great glorious future. It's working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So he says it's momentary in comparison to the future glory, it's light, but it is heavy. But God is using it for an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So what James is saying is not foreign to what the church held to. But in the 21st century America, we don't always hold that dear to our hearts. So let this text motivate you. It is God's testing place to set your heart on the future. And that is the third, it is your trial is preparing you for the crown of life. Your trial is preparing you for the crown of life. Blessed is a man who persevered on the trial, for once he has been approved, he received the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Of course, when an athlete would win an event in the first century, he'd receive a, a crown or a wreath, over his head, crowning him as victor. Paul illustrated that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. In the modern Olympics, winners receive a gold medal. But what I just mentioned in, from 1 Corinthians 9, 25 has more of the Greek-Roman context to it. I would say that James is probably using a Jewish word picture. Either as a reference to a royal crown, as in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 30, when David's army defeated the royal city of Rabbah, and took the crown from the defeated king's head, and it was placed on him. Or the crown is a picture of the honor that God gives. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 7, you read that God promises an unfading crown of glory. In James, this crown is also unfading. It is the crown of life. That crown is either a living crown, or James is saying that life is the crown that is eternal life. I believe that the text supports that the crown is God's gift of eternal life. Now, this is not something that we earn. This is not meritorious. This is a promise from God, but it is also attached to the believer's enduring trials. This is critical so that this does not become a works-based this motivation is not to earn something in your own power it's to receive something that is already promised to you. It's to receive what is already promised to you. But in that promise there's a responsibility in the Christian's part to bear up under the trials because God in his providence as you travel through this world he's connected your trials with this glorious crown of life, this glorious reward. If you recall in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 10, that promise also comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is the only place where this crown of life is mentioned. It's mentioned by the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 2. The church in Smyrna, So the angel and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? Verse 8 of Revelation 2. This is what the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says. I know your tribulation. And here it is. Here's, Here's hardship now. Similar to what James is referring to. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that, here it is, you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful. Not until you get out of the test. Be faithful, dear saints, until death and I will give you the crown of life. Now this command. Exhortation is not just for the church in Smyrna because they are not the only ones who did and suffered or who faced hardship or trials. This is for every believer. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He overcomes, will never be hurt by the second death. This is for all the believers. So once more in this text, faithfulness, enduring, trust in God, confidence in God, Is tied to the crown of life. This is not meritorious. It is the mark of the Christian. It is is how we are branded. Bearing up in trials with, with bold confidence in God, with a trust in God. We don't waver at God's promises, we trust in God's word. This is the mark of the Christian. This is not get this. So, you can attain this. No, this is, you're attaining this because you are a Christian. You will receive this because you are in Christ. And so, the trial will not alter that, it only accentuates, it reveals that reality. It makes it clear, it makes it true. So, through trials, God paves the path to the crown of life. God is preparing you, dear saints, for that life through trials, through hardship. Once again, I go back to the importance of making the right value judgment. Having the right estimate about trials. To rejoice, not to regret, to give thanks not to grumble. It's preparing you for that. And so another motivating factor, which is not a part of the three that I gave, but maybe as a sub-point, is that James wants God's people to achieve the fullness of this blessing, or to receive the fullness of this blessing that is in Christ. Christ. It's also, I think important to keep this connected with progressive sanctification. There is the progressive part of sanctification, day by day, moment by moment, we' be conformed to the image of Christ. We're not sinless, but through the course of time, we will sin less and pursue more righteous virtues, but then there's the perfect sanctification. So this crown of life is, is within that reality. Those who will receive this perfect sanctification, you're going to notice that progressively they're becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear saints, an encounter with Christ doesn't produce less of him. An encounter with Christ and his word produces more of him. He's glorious And he's so attractive that you would desire to be like him. That is a gift in salvation. That's what this crown of life is. It is receiving in the future. But in doing so in such a way that you're pursuing it now in this present life, and it is through trials. It is through trials. And then at the end of verse 12, it says that the Lord has prepared this or promised Of course, in the original text, it doesn't have the Lord's name in it, but it's the Lord or God has promised to those who love him, those who love him. Once again, he's prepared this trial. He's promised something glorious in the trial, but also in the future, and then it is something is prepared for those who love him, and this is not some light statement that James makes here. This is a profound truth. Because he says this this at the end of his treatment on trials, that you love him even as you are in the midst of the trial. The love here, dear saints, it is it is continuous. It's it's uninterrupted. Now this is your love for him. This is not his love for you. His love is not uninterrupted. It's perfect. It is infinitely good. Yours is not perfect. Nor is it infinitely good. It is not infinitely pure. But once again, let's go back to the word, the disposition of the heart. The general tendency of the heart is love toward him. It's continuous. It is what characterizes you and what identifies you as someone who loves him. Now, you, you, your love doesn't change because of the trial. So let me ask you a question. I'm going to look back at John just to illustrate this. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever noticed um, that it's harder to tell God you love him when things are bad? Or you say bad or hard? Or has it been the same? Right? You have the same response. Okay, something just hits you. It's like, whoa, this. Then in your heart comes this thought, okay, you're supposed to say, you know, blessed be in the name of the Lord who gives and takes away. You worship and you give him thanks. you say, well, Father, I'm so grateful. I love you so much. Okay, in the trial, have you gotten to a point in the trial where you say, well, Lord, I, now I actually love you more in the trial than I did before? It's incredible. Have you ever thought about your love for God in trials? And sometimes as Christians, we don't examine ourselves enough, but we should what, is, what are your responses to hardship? Do you tell him you love him? Oh, he said, oh, no, not really, because, you know, when me and my wife are going at it and we have our problems and our issues, yeah, we don't really tell each other we love each other. Ah, so it's not continuous, huh? You can't tell your spouse you love them? Parents to children, can you as parents tell your children you love them after you've corrected them? Can you hug them and kiss them and express your tender affections for them? This love is continuous. It is ongoing. It is not interrupted by circumstances because you know you're blessed in Christ. So your thoughts about God, and here it is, your thoughts about God will not change if it is based on the character of God, not what God does, but who God is. So therefore, what, what happens is not as relevant as who God is. It's not the what, it's the who. It's not what's happening, it's the who. It's, it's God. Well, our Savior says this in John 14:15, and you're probably acquainted with this. If, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." John 15:10, "If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Just I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love or remain in His love." Continuous. But our Savior makes a connection, as James does between love and obedience the apostle john in uh, first john as you're turning your iPads over to first john and your e-devices first john chapter 2 i'll start with verse 1 of 1 John chapter 2, my little children, are am these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the world. Here we go. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a lie, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, the Lord's word or God's word, truly in him, the love of God has been perfected by this. We know that we are in him. There is this love and obedience, chapter 5 of 1 John Verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. But then where is this love rooted, this love? 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, and this is where our response of love comes from. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. So, of course, this love is seen in not only the vertical, but the horizontal. Our love for God and our love for each other. So the response of love is based on what God has done in offering up of Christ for us. So, therefore, every Christian who is in Christ loves Him. And they have this promised crown of life which God, who cannot lie, promises to give to them. So now, do you see trials as a blessing leading to the future glory, preparing you for this crown of life that God has prepared? Let me remind you of this. I want to remind you of the importance of your confidence in God. Do you have conflicting thoughts about God when trials come? Or are you firm in your trust? Do you agree, as Titus 1, verses 1 through 2 says, that God is the shortest eternal life, but he's the God who cannot lie? Are you confident in him? Well, you you have to be confident in God to, to trust, verse 12, because... The great promise is not in this life. The great promise is in the life to come. It is to trust that God will give you something after you die, this this glorious promised crown of life after you die or when Christ returns. That means if the trial is perpetual and is ongoing, your confidence in God does not change. You may have moments where you waver, but you do not entertain ongoing thoughts about God because you cannot have ongoing thoughts of love and trust with ongoing conflicting thoughts of doubt. James says that is a what? Double-minded. You are two-souled. You're trying to have one soul in the world and one soul with God. Number two, let me ask you this question. Is your love for Christ unchanged during trials? Can you tell him you love him and express this love and thanksgiving to God? Or do you treat him like just a normal friend? You know, your friend, they upset you, you're disappointed, you're sad, and I'm not saying you should respond They Well, guess what you they call you don't answer. You see the call, you have caller ID now, you have text messages, you just can't ignore people and unplug the phone anymore, unless you turn it off, but some of you can't turn your phones off unless you die. So, so you leave your phones on and, and, and there's, do you treat, now of course it's sinful to ignore them, but how much more your heavenly father? Do you express thoughts of, of gratitude and, and, and thanksgiving to him even in the midst of trials? Is your love steady or continuous? There is another one, maybe to illustrate and to help. I did refer to Job, but then this question is, what if God seems hidden? What if it seems as if there there are no concrete answers as to what's going on and you don't really feel the help or sense the help? Um, I looked back at Job and... Uh, Job is before Psalm. If you would like to turn there with me, I think that will be helpful. It's before the Psalter, before Psalms, you have Job. And you recall the beginning of this account with Job. Uh, Job says, uh, chapter 1, he was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, so he had a, a full family ten children. He had the sheep, the camels, oxen. So things were going well. But then Yahweh said to Satan, from where do you come? In verse 7, then Satan answered and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around it. And then Yahweh said to Satan, have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. Ah, Satan answered Yahweh and said, Does Job fear God without cause? Have you not made a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But send forth your hand now. Touch all he has. He will surely curse you to your face. And then Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only do not send forth your hand toward him. So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. And, of course, that is the beginning of just a cascade of events, of tragedy, of of bodily affliction, of sorrow, of pain. And then along with that just came some really bad advice from friends. But this is, not only do you see that this is a sovereignty of God, and there may be reasons unknown as to why God puts us through the trials, but there is an answer in Job on a personal level for us to consider as we think about James. In chapter 23, James is responding to one of his comrades, Eliphaz. So Eliphaz actually makes some helpful statements, but not the right context. He raises accusations, and so his counsel is poor because he's not asking questions. He's making false assumptions. So in chapter 23, Job believes that he has a good argument. Eliphaz is wrong, and he has a good argument to present before God. But then he says in verses 8 and 9, He's uncertain as to what God is doing, or even if if it's possible, because he says, behold, I go forward, but he's not there. I go backward, but I cannot discern him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, I cannot see him. Well, that is amazing. And a profound truth. Job says, "I, I mean, I give up. God is, he's the Almighty, and I have no idea what's going on. But notice what he says in verse 10. Even though he's not clear, he doesn't always have clear answers. He doesn't always grasp what he thinks he should. What he does is he relies on his trust in God. So it says in verse 10, but he knows God knows the way that I take. When, I, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Now in verse 10, Job is either saying that God knows him and is aware of his circumstance. That's one possibility. Or It could mean that Job is confident that God knows what is best. He knows the way I take. He knows what is best. And then here it is. And when he has tested me. So he knows that this test is from God. And so Job is saying, I may not understand everything. I want a lot of answers. I think I need answers. But this is what I know that God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. In our affliction, in our trial, in our tragedy, in our sorrows, God knows. So Job can trust that God cares for him. And so what does he do? He says in verse 11, My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. So what Job is saying is that I don't think this affliction has something to do with what I've done wrong. God has something else in view. It's not for my wrongdoing. And James is saying, yes, there are some sins or some trials that are part of our sins. But James is saying, no, there are trials outside of us that is not sins that we've committed. But we're in a sinful world and God uses these trials to sharpen us and to us. So Job is saying, I have not been unfaithful. That's not why I'm suffering. I'm suffering from the hand of a good God and for the purpose of a good God. So you can say, I know this much. I know God is at work. And it is for my good, from the hand of a good God. they are saints These trials are a blessing. These trials that you're facing, they're a blessing. Your trial, it is God's testing place. Purifying, bringing more and more of this this genuine authenticity of the Christian faith through trials, sanctifies you and separates you more and more, not only from your own desires, but even from the world. It makes you distinct. But then it is preparing you for the crown of life. Don't run from the trial. Nor am I saying run to the trial. Because it's coming for you. No, I'm saying remain in the trial. There's eternal good in it from an infinitely good God. I can't help but go back to this this posing question is what are your thoughts about God from day to day? Then what are your thoughts about God in the trials? Does it change? Do you edit those thoughts? This this love that James speaks about, it it is cultivated in sanctification and a part of sanctification trials. To refine your, your love your affection for what is eternal. Paul says it's preparing you. It's it's turning your eyes away from the temporal, fleeting, momentary transitoriness of this life that fixes your hope on the eternal. It takes your heart away from today's comfort, and it fixes your heart towards the glorious Christ. It tunes your wayward instruments that are tuned to the world. All of your heartstrings tied to this world's enjoyments and, and it tunes your heart to praise and glorify God. Job says, I don't know everything, but I don't know if this is from God. It is all good from a gloriously good God. And one more thought this thing says, as we consider this crown of life, you and I have to evaluate day by day what we're really living for. Are we living today in hope of a future glorious return of our Savior, Jesus Christ? Or are you in? Are we now modern-day saints? I just want to know how God can help me in the here and now. There are so many sermons saturated with "How can I be a better version of myself?" Well, I do have an answer for that. You will be the best version of yourself after you die. This is the worst version of yourself. Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. That doesn't sound complimentary. Who will deliver me from, from this body beset by sin? You no, know, These trials are weaning instruments, and we need them. We now our affections off of this world and to Christ, our affections off of the temple to the eternal. From the here and now and the hereafter. Yeah, I get it. You say, well, if I don't get something to help me now, how am I going to feel the future? No, because in the gospel, it starts with the eternal and it works its way back. It starts with the Christ and works its way down. It starts with your position in Christ and it works its way down to this present life. It starts with the eternal and then it works the temporal out with the eternal in view it's a reversal. It's a grand reversal. So the saints see the trial as something glorious as the world will not, because it begins with the eternal and not the temporal. Now, if you're not in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not trusted in him, then all of this is just talk and information, but there's no transformation without regeneration. You must. Be born again. If you've heard this sermon in James and you recognize that you're not in Christ, you have not trusted in Him, there's there's no hope of eternal life, you're dead in your sin. He's opened your eyes to see that now is the time. Today is the day. Tomorrow is not promised, the future is uncertain. I mean, right now they're lining up nuclear bombs. If there are five nuclear bombs, four of them are headed towards the US. That's how much they love us. Disaster is probably imminent. And I'm not trying to strike fear. It's just tomorrow is just not promised. You can wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden, poof, the judge is at the door. It's just how uncertain this world is. And he said, Well, did you watch the news to get that? No, just there's hostility and tension because we're here. You just need one madman in this one. And we have more than one who are sitting in office, you just need at least one to press a crazy button. You say, well, that ain't going to happen unless God, yes. And what if that's one of his means? See, the Christian is not living in fear. We know that if that, that nuclear bomb lands, and that's the final trial. You know, there's one uh, preacher, was, I think Dr. Shannon said that if they behead me, they can only do it once. If the nuke drops and it hits the target, it just happens to hit my address, it's not going to happen again. I'm gloriously transformed. But for the unbeliever, there's just great fear and terror. They can't even sleep at night because they might die. But for the saint, there is hope. I do not want you to be misled. The crown of life is for the Christian. And if you're not in Christ, you don't have it. The love for Christ is bound in the heart of a Christian. You cannot love if you do not know Christ. Turn to Him and be saved. Let us pray. Thank you, Father. for displaying such love and truth to us. May your saints rejoice in trials knowing that you are at work, confident in your sovereign goodness, resting in your impeccable character, and know that after they have been tried, they will come out as gold. That in the process of trials, it is revealing the character of our faith as it did for Job, who was blameless. And also when there are areas of imperfection, it continues to purge as it reveals. So that we may be then we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I pray that we will rejoice and give thanks to you for blessing us to see trials the right way. Blessed is the man who perseveres on the trials, for after he's been approved, the result of this trial, he'll receive the crown of life for those who love you.